Remain standing for a moment. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Our sermon text this morning, Matthew 17, verses 24 to 27. These are the words of God. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. My soul longs for your salvation. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask you now to send your Holy Spirit to enliven our hearts and minds in love to Christ as we've just sung, to delight in the truths of this passage. And, O Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be submissive people who, in love to you, obey your commands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This will be probably a great passage of Scripture to teach around April the 15th. Um, Maybe to give you the command to go into, you know, cast a hook in the water and find uh, the money that's required to pay your taxes. Maybe February the 1st to pay your property taxes. Um, Anyway, uh, we've got this passage before us dealing with um, the relationship of Christ and this particular tax. And uh, I think there's a wonderful uh, maybe illustration as we come into this passage that comes from the book of 1 Kings. And before he died... Saul's son, Jonathan, made a covenant with David, and they were very close friends. And so David promised whatever happened that he would always take care of uh, the sons of Saul. Well, it came about that the only son left to the house of Saul was a young man by the name of Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth had been dropped as a child and injured. And because of that, he was a paralytic of some sort. He couldn't walk. So he is very, very needy. And he was found and brought into David's house. And in a remarkable picture of David's faithfulness to his covenant and his love for Jonathan, he made Mephibosheth sit at his own table. You think about, some of you maybe have watched uh, Downton Abbey. Um, and you think of this time period where you have in a single house levels of authority and levels of privilege. And I think especially of the scene where they eat meals together. And the family are seated around the table while the servants all are either down in the serving quarters or they are standing around the table watching the family. So they can see the privilege, but they are not entitled to the privilege. They eat after the family has eaten, and they 
attend to all the needs of the family. Now think of the distinction between Mephibosheth, who's given a seat at the table, and the Downton Abbey family, who the servants simply look on, they watch. I think that's an appropriate illustration for us this morning because what we see is that Christ is the king, but he allows Peter, he enables Peter to partake of his privileges as king. And I think this is a wonderful picture of the privilege of being a son of the kingdom. No longer are God's people servants, as it were, but Christ brings all His people to the table. And He seats us together with Him there. And what we learned this morning from this passage, quite simply, is that the Lord Jesus Christ was born King of the earth in His humanity. And through Him, Christians enjoy great privileges and great responsibilities great privileges, and great responsibilities. Now, as we come into this passage in verse 24, notice that they've come back to Capernaum. This is home base, as it were. They've come back to Peter's house. And and so now, in just a few short, short verses, we've come to this amazing image of Christ in His ascended glory. And now they've come back, as it were, into real life, into Capernaum. And and Peter, or Jesus is preparing them. They are about to turn the corner and make their way to Jerusalem. This is going to be just a few months away that Jesus will be crucified. But they've returned to the city of Capernaum. And as they return, what Matthew relates to us is the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? So here's, here's the setting. Does Jesus pay taxes? Interesting question. Maybe you've not thought of that before. Does Jesus pay taxes? Now, literally, they come up to him, and the word tax doesn't occur in the passage. They come to Peter, and they say, does your teacher give the double drachma? So we need a little bit of context to understand what's going on here. If you've got your Bible, take it and turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. We read there, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them. When you number them, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make an atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So you see there, an annual temple tax was imposed on the people of God and it's called a ransom. 
It's called atonement money in this passage of Scripture. But we learn the, uh, here in Exodus 30, the target of the tax, or you could, you could also say uh, a tribute. In Matthew 17, the King James calls it tribute money, not a tax. But the target of the tax, according to verses 14 to 15, is everyone who's 20 years old and up. In other words, every man who is eligible to go into military service for Israel uh, becomes part of this census. But this is men and women. The purpose of the tax, we learn in verses 11 and 12, when you take the census of the people, each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. And so you're paying this money to the collectors to ransom your life, as it were, from the Lord. To make atonement for yourself. We learn the use of this tax in verses 16 and verse 16. They were to take this atonement money from the people of Israel and do what? Give it for the service of the temple. They didn't pave roads with the money, fill potholes. They took the money and they used it for the service of the tent of meeting. And that's important because this is not a civil tax, is it? This is the imposition of an ecclesiastical tax. It was used for the service of the temple. So it went to such things as perhaps a purchase incense, as it were, the things that they needed to serve God in worship at the temple. We learn in Nehemiah chapter 10 that after they had returned from their exile and this scrap of people, as it were, came back to Jerusalem, they recommitted themselves to the collection of this temple tax. Nehemiah 10, verses 32 to 33. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So here's the, the basic idea of what's happening here. They've returned, as we go back to Matthew 17, uh, they've returned to Capernaum, and it is time, which usually took place about a month before Passover, that they would collect this double drachma, or, in other words, this shekel. They would take this money. Now, interestingly, we won't go into this this morning, but they would, they would have to exchange their foreign money for... Uh, we'll say Jewish money. And that was the purpose of the money changers at the temple. They would bring their money, they would exchange it, pay a fee, and then give their temple tax. So there's the background for what's going on. And these men come to Peter and they say, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Well, Peter, perhaps unthinkingly, but reacting, says, well, of course he does. Yes. He pays the tax. Our teacher pays the tax. And so as we work through this then, just a couple of simple points. One, we notice the privilege of the sons of God in verses 24 to 26. The privilege of the sons of God. The first thing that Jesus does is he, as they're going into the house, he doesn't even give Peter an opportunity to respond. You, you can think, he, he, he knows what's going on in Peter's mind, and he, he beats him to the punch, as it were. So before Peter even says anything, Jesus approaches him and he says, Peter, what do you think? From whom do kings 
collect their taxes from their sons or from others. And Peter thinks for a minute, he says, well, from others. Kings don't collect taxes from their children. That wouldn't make any sense. And Peter, Jesus then says, well, the sons then are free. And what Jesus is saying there, what he's reminding Peter, Peter, Peter knew this, he's already confessed Christ as the Son of God. He, he's teaching us that he is the king of the earth. This is his privilege. And perhaps you, you might wonder, did, did Peter in that moment where they are asking him uh, whether Christ pays the tax or not, maybe there was a moment where he wrestled and said, well, I, I know he's the son of God, so logically, of course he doesn't pay taxes to anybody. And then again, Jesus has told me not to tell anybody that he's the son of God, so sure, he will pay the tax. Whatever the case may be, Peter obligated Jesus to the tax. But Jesus says kings don't pay taxes. In this simple parable, he says, who do kings collect their taxes from? They don't collect them from their own family. That would be just to change money from one hand to another, as it were. Kings collect their taxes from other people. And what he is teaching Peter in that simple parable is, that he himself is a king. He asserts that he is a king. He has kingly privileges. And he is the son of God. God would not collect a tax from his own son. He doesn't owe anything. He is free. Why does this mean that he doesn't have to pay the tax, though? Very simply, the temple for which the funds were collected belongs to God. This temple is God's habitation. It is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, the representation of God's footstool. The center of the Jewish life was the Ten Commandments within that Ark, showing God's rule over them and over, indeed, the whole earth. And Matthew Henry comments here, he says, Christ is the Son of God. He is the heir of all things. According to Malachi 3.1, the temple is His temple. The temple is his father's house, according to John 2.16. And in it he is faithful as a son in his own house, and therefore he is not obliged to pay this tax for the service of the temple. In Hebrews 3, the writer there demonstrates that Moses was a servant in the house, but Christ is a son. Very simply, what is demonstrated by this brief passage is that Christ is the king of the whole earth. Everything belongs to him. It's sad then, the condition of these men, think of it. They come to Jesus asking him to pay this tax, representing what? They don't know who he is. And all that he's done in this region of Galilee they don't see who he is. They are afflicted with a spiritual blindness. But we also see in this passage another privilege. We see Christ's privilege. He is the king. But there's another privilege demonstrated in, this, in these verses. We see the Christian's privilege, don't we? Notice, 
that in verse 27, Jesus paid the tax in Peter's behalf. Jesus says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. In other words, Jesus makes a provision for himself and for Peter. And I think this is the, this is the very special part of this passage. We know that Christ is a king. But we see here that Christ is a king who shares his privilege with his people. Jesus paid the tax in Peter's behalf. Now, one thing that you should know is that uh, in Roman Catholicism, they use this passage as a proof text to show that, you see, Peter is equal to Christ. Peter is the vicar of Christ. He is the one who on earth stands in the Lord's place. John Calvin points out, it is therefore very ridiculous in the papists on so frivolous a pretense to make Peter a partner in the dignity of Christ. He says, he chose him, they say, to be his vicar and bestowed on him equal honors by making him equal to himself in the payment of tribute. But in this way, they will make all swine herders vicars of Christ, for they paid the tribute. Whence comes that exemption which they claim for themselves? But this is the necessary result of the shameful trifling of those who corrupt Scripture according to their own fancy. Why did Jesus pay the tax for Peter? Because he lived with Peter. Presumably, he would have paid the tax for all of his disciples if they lived in the same house. There's no reason to make this some special passage about Peter. Indeed, I think we ought to observe from this that it demonstrates the special place for everyone who trusts in Christ. Isn't that what the Scriptures teach in general? We believe in the doctrine of adoption. That God makes everyone who is in union with Christ a son. Our own confession of faith puts it this way. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth. In other words, God seals in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ. You need to take this to heart. Because if you are in union with Jesus Christ through faith, you are not standing along the wall of the house watching Christ eat with His Father. He brings you to the table. You feast with Him. The confession goes on. To make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have His name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness. He hears your prayers just as He hears the prayers of His Son. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, You are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him 
as by a father yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. I've given you this illustration before, but I think it's appropriate again here. I had, I had the privilege of attending an adoption ceremony. I don't know if you've ever attended one before. But in this particular case, the judge, as he concluded the adoption ceremony, he looked at the young lady who was being adopted. And he said, I need to explain something to you. What's happening now is we are going to remove your parents' names from your birth certificate. And this couple who's adopting you, their names will go on to your birth certificate in their place. In the eyes of the law, your parents are these adoptive parents. This is the doctrine of adoption. You see, God gives you a privilege he puts His name upon you. You don't belong to sin. You don't belong to Satan. You belong eternally and unchangeably to God the Father. You are kept by His power. He protects you. He pities you. He gives you a right to come into His presence to make your prayers known to Him. And He is pleased to answer those prayers. And that belongs only to the sons of God through Jesus Christ. He pays the atonement price Himself. You have great privilege through Christ. But you also have great responsibility. Notice that Jesus said in verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish that comes up. In other words, in order not to stir the waters, we'll say for a moment, pay the tax. I don't owe the tax, but I will pay it for me and for you. Why is Jesus here concerned not to give offense? We, as we've observed his ministry so far, he hasn't batted an eye at giving anyone offense. You remember just a few chapters ago in Matthew chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, it was Peter who came up to him then and said, Lord, don't you know that you offended the Pharisees by what you said? And Jesus, in His divine way, said, what of it? Let them be. But here, strangely, He's Concerned about giving an offense. What's the difference? Why the change? I think, very simply, there are occasions when the sons of God are responsible to give offense, and there are occasions when the sons of God are responsible not to give offense. And as you think, as we mature in the faith, it is very important to distinguish between those two times. When is the Son of God responsible to give offense? Well, the preaching of the Gospel is by its very nature offensive. To present Christ, to present Christ to the world is to present what? The stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. 
You cannot preach the gospel and be concerned to give offense to men. It by nature will. Why? Because you are calling men to give submission to the king of the earth. You are telling them you are not your own. You belong to God. And you owe Him honor and glory and obedience. You're a sinner. And this by very nature is offensive. It offended the Pharisees. And this is the reason that the apostles, when the time was right, rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name because it showed them that they were preaching faithfully. With reference then to the preaching of the gospel, to the preaching of the doctrines of Christ, there is a responsibility to give offense. But then also Jesus points out that there's a responsibility to reserve offense. And I think we want to think for just a moment about why Jesus paid the tax. Why did he pay it? Well, he says, I don't want to give offense. Not to give offense. Why does Jesus, why is he concerned about giving offense in this moment? Maybe several reasons. One, on account of the gospel. Perhaps out of deference to these men who are requesting money not to detract from the gospel, not to to build an unnecessary impediment to the preaching of the gospel. Perhaps that's the reason. Maybe it's the legal requirement. You remember that Galatians 4.4 teaches us that Jesus was made under the law. As to His humanity, He was obligated to keep every tenet of God's law. And as he began to preach, remember in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, he said he did not relax any aspect of God's law. Some imagine that Jesus came to earth and he has relaxed God's law. But this is to deny what he said. He didn't come to abrogate the law. He came to confirm the law in every detail. And so like you and me then, in his humanity, Christ was made under The law. What does that mean? He had to keep it. He had to fulfill it. He couldn't disobey it. If he had, then his sacrifice would have been for himself and not for us. Christ did not relax any of the law's demands. And so, maybe this is simply a legal requirement. I think the answer may be very, very simple, actually. Why did Jesus pay the tax? Because Peter said he would. They asked Peter, does not your teacher pay the the tax? And Peter says, yes, he does. So perhaps Christ, out of deference to Peter, who has committed his master, pays the tax. Because his yes is yes, and his no is no, even in behalf of his disciples. We are responsible as the sons of God at times to reserve offense, to keep our word. We do not give offense for the sake of offense ever. Matthew Henry says, we must never decline our duty for fear of giving offense. Christ's preaching and miracles offended them, yet He went on with Him. 
Better offend men than God, Henry says, so there are times where it's appropriate to offend. But he says this, but we must sometimes deny ourselves in that which is our secular interest rather than give offense. In other words, there is, especially with regard to the brethren, there ought to be a tenderness of conscience to one another. I am mindful of your strengths and your weaknesses, the things that you approve of and the things that you disapprove of. And as you grow as a body, you think of places like uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans 14, where the apostle there looks with praise when we deny something that is our right in order not to offend a brother in the faith. And that's a good thing. That's what Matthew Henry is praising. That's what we see our Lord do. He has this privilege. He could say, I am the king of the earth. I don't owe the tax. The temple belongs to me. And yet, out of deference, perhaps to the word committed by his own disciple, he pays the tax. But also notice, as we've said, Jesus enables Peter to fulfill his responsibility. It's interesting, in reading commentaries on this, there are lots of men who sort of get wrapped around the axle on this statement. Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will, take, you will find a shekel. And so commentators will say there are other uh, Jewish mythological stories about men finding things in a fish's mouth and using it. And notice they will say that we never have an account of Peter actually going and catching the fish and paying the tax. So maybe this is just kind of a parable and they have a good laugh about it. Peter never actually did it. But as we understand this, the doctrine of adoption, what we understand from that is that we are given the right to all the privileges of the sons of God, and one of those rights is the provision of God. He provides for His people. Now we read of Christ in Psalm 8, 5-9, For Thou hast made Him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned Him with glory and honor. Thou madest Him to have dominion over the works of Thy hands. Thou hast put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea. And whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent in thy name is thy name in all the earth. Christ, in his humanity even, has dominion over the whole earth. It all belongs to him. In Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, we read, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In other words, Christ is the all in all. He has no need. He is the self-sufficient One. And yet here in this moment, using His power, He miraculously provides for Himself and for Peter. 
Wise Christians recognize that when offense is necessary and when it is necessary and proper and when it is not. And, and we delight equally in both opportunities. We notice from this passage that we are able to serve others in such a way, dying to ourselves, reserving offense in such a way. Why? Because Christ is our great King and He has elevated us to Himself and gives us every resource, physical and spiritual, to serve Him faithfully. He gives you, out of His resources, everything that you need to serve Him faithfully. The Lord Jesus Christ was born King of the earth. Through Him, Christians enjoy great privileges and great responsibilities. This passage explicitly teaches Christ's authority over all things. He is the Son of God and the Master of His creation. We also see He is pleased to share the benefits of His kingdom with His people. By ourselves, we are nothing. By ourselves, if we took all the nations of the earth, we wouldn't even register on God's scale. But in Christ, you are lifted into the heavenly places. In Christ, you are seated with Him. In Christ, you are made a judge of men and of angels. In Christ, you are an heir of all the privileges of the sons of God. None of this testifies to your greatness or to mine. It testifies to the greatness of God's grace to us through Christ. We devote ourselves to obedience to Christ because He is a King. We love Christ because He is our brother. We worship Christ because He has rescued us from the domain of sin and Satan. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, this is a wonder of all wonders that You would take those who are nothings of the earth, those who are weak and foolish in and of ourselves, and that You would elevate us in Christ to the heavenly places. That You would provide for us out of Your resources. That You would set us free from all the demands of men and yet teach us how to live in this age under the dominion of men. Lord, we ask that You would give us wisdom so that we might know when offense is appropriate and unavoidable and when not to give offense, when to die to self, exemplifying the service of Christ, the One made under the law. We ask that You would help us in these, these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.